You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our text this afternoon, we have two readings. Our first reading is from the Old Testament, a beautiful passage, a passage of comfort to a troubled people. We read together Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs." For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. And we turn to the New Testament, the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. 
If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 20, the Catechism continues the explanation of the Apostles' Creed, the articles of the Christian faith, and in Lord's Day 20, we come to the beginning of the section regarding the Holy Spirit. Lord's Day 20. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is, together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this past week, Thursday, We celebrated Reformation Day. It's true that that's not the name that most people associate with this last week, Thursday, but it's true nonetheless. While Halloween is a celebration of death, the Reformation really is a celebration of life. It's a celebration of life. The life that the Spirit breathes into the church. And into this world, the reformation, the return of the church to the word, that word that gives life. On the sign outside of this church building by the road, on your liturgy sheets, it says that we are a reformed church, Langley Canadian Reformed Church. And so obviously that That word is important to us. Now, unfortunately, being reformed does not always have have positive connotations, not in everyone's ears, at least. People have thought of reformed people as overzealous doctrinaires. People are too concerned about doctrine and, and, and ideas, not so concerned about life and love. Reformed has been associated with cold theology and even colder Christians. The frozen chosen, as Calvinists have been coined in different times. But this afternoon we come to the Heidelberg Catechism, a product of the Reformation of the Reformed Church. And I think we must all agree 
that there's nothing cold about this confession. There's nothing cold about the way that it's, it's written. It's been affectionately called the book of comfort. It begins, of course, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then goes on to speak at length, not just in Lord's Day 1, but at length about the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. And the encouragement that we gain from Him, the benefits that come from the right hand of God. The benefits that we receive from being united, body and soul, life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this document, the Heidelberg Catechism, was such a warm and pastoral confession because it was a confession written to people who needed comfort. People in the time of the Reformation needed comfort. They lived difficult lives. They they were most used to difficult doctrine, a, a doctrine that gave them no assurance of salvation. A doctrine that, that told them that you had to earn your way into heaven. And even after you died, you had to continue to earn and earn and earn and earn. After the Reformation began, then they also needed comfort because they were being put to death for their confession. Guido de Bre, who wrote the Belgic Confession, was put to death for his confession. The authors of this catechism lived in Germany, faced a lot of hardship, persecution, because of their beliefs. John Calvin, perhaps the most famous reformer, wrote many, many letters to ministers who were in jail for the faith. Wrote letters to wives of men who had been put to death for their faith. He himself had to go into hiding, flee France because of his confession. This was written to people who needed comfort. The people in those days needed comfort. And brothers and sisters, we need comfort today as well, don't we? Yes, we live very comfortable lives. But we don't always live very comforted lives. We can hold to doctrines that are not true, that cause us to wonder about our salvation. We too can face hardship and trouble for confessing our faith. We too experience the brokenness of life, the brokenness of relationships, the sin of our own hearts, the breakdown of our own bodies. We too are people in need of comfort. Lord's Day 1 teaches that, teaches us to expect our only comfort in life and death in this, that we belong to Jesus Christ. We come to this Lord's Day this afternoon, Lord's Day 20. We come to a Lord's Day that's summarizing a vast amount of, of biblical insight into a very, very short space as it teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And it tells us that that status and experience of belonging to Jesus Christ in which our only comfort is found is the result of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That it's the Holy Spirit who makes this possible. He's the one who unites us 
to Jesus Christ. So that in a broken, sinful world, as broken, sinful people, we can experience true, deep, and lasting comfort. And so we consider this afternoon the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, as we consider that the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. And we'll see that He is the source, the sustainer, and the security of our life in Christ. The source, the beginning, the sustainer, the one who continues that work in us, and also the security, the guarantee of our life in Christ. So first of all, the source. Before we can really consider how the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ, we have to first consider that we are actually not the focus of the work of the Holy Spirit. Often, when we think of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, the one who works in us, we think the Holy Spirit must be singularly focused upon the church. But actually, that's not true. The Holy Spirit has another singular focus, and that's not us. It's Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is, first of all, focused upon Jesus Christ. And the beginning of that is expressed in the reality of the Trinity. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit are from all eternity, true and eternal God. Before we ever came on the scene, the Spirit was focused on the Son for the glory of the Father. The Son and the Spirit have lived together in perfect communion from all eternity. And we, we, that's, that's true, the Trinity. It's a beautiful reality, but we have to realize it's so much more than, than just a, a truth. So much more than, dare I say, just a doctrine. But that connection between the Son and the Spirit is actually a relationship. It's a relational connection. They're close. They're best friends. We can see that closeness between the Spirit and our Lord Jesus Christ. When we consider the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's where it really becomes clear to us. So we see, as, as one person, Sinclair Ferguson, has characterized the Spirit during Jesus' time on earth as his best friend. His best friend. So we'll consider the connection between the Lord Jesus and the Spirit. Even before Jesus was born, of course, the Spirit was speaking about him. Like a best friend who can't stop speaking about the one that he loves, the Spirit, before Jesus even comes, is speaking about him. He's speaking to the prophets, and he's speaking to his people through the prophets, speaking the mysteries of Jesus Christ to them, mysteries that would only become clear when the Son of God would become flesh. John the Baptist, of course, the one who the Spirit caused to leap in the womb of his mother, was the last of these prophets. The ones who prepared the way, who spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ. The Spirit was the one preparing the way. And it was the Spirit who came upon Mary, remember, and caused her to conceive it's the Spirit who, who guides the Son from the glory of heaven through the womb of the Virgin Mary to that manger in Bethlehem. The Spirit is the one delivering Christ into this world. 
As Jesus grows older, from a baby to a young man, Luke records twice that he grows in wisdom. It doesn't mention the Spirit here, but we can be sure that the Spirit is the one who is, is causing that growth. The Spirit is the one who, who carefully and powerfully instructing Jesus It's causing him to grow in the word of the Lord, in wisdom, and in grace. The Spirit is the one who comes and powerfully sets off Jesus' ministry. He he compels Jesus to go to the Jordan to be baptized. And there, when Jesus is baptized, the Father announces his good pleasure, and the Spirit is seen descending on Jesus like a dove. It's not as though the Spirit hadn't been with Jesus before then. But the the picture of the Spirit is there as a sign. And now Jesus is, as Luke 4 verse 1 mentions, full of the Spirit. He's powerfully energized by the Spirit for his redemptive work. Jesus announces as much when he preaches that first sermon in Nazareth, also in Luke chapter 4. He reads Isaiah 61, the words that we read together. And he says, this passage is now fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit has now come upon me. Jesus is saying that his preaching, his healing, his redemptive work will now be accomplished. How? Through the powerful work of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who constantly is revealing himself to Jesus during his ministry. He's the one who fills Jesus with wisdom and with joy and with praise. When the disciples live and walk with Jesus, they're living and walking with the Holy Spirit as well. Through Jesus, they see the Spirit at work. God the Spirit was with Jesus at every turn of his life. But it wasn't just, or only, to impart a sense of of joy and purpose to Jesus. It certainly wasn't a superficial sense of, of joy and purpose. That's often what we associate with the Spirit, don't we? Someone who we characterized as as being full of the Spirit is someone who has this sense of joy and purpose. They they seem really energetic, like they're on a high. But you know what happens after a high? You hit a low. But this isn't the way that the Spirit is with Jesus. No, the Spirit is, is energizing Jesus because Jesus has come to earth with a mission. But to accomplish that mission, he had to take upon himself human frailty and weakness. He needs the Spirit. Yes, he's the son of God, but he needs the power of the spirit to accomplish this mission. The spirit wasn't with Jesus along for the ride. He wasn't a tag along. He was vital to Jesus' work. He was the power that made our Lord Jesus strong. He was the revelation that made clear the path that our Lord Jesus was to take. He was the encourager that when our Lord Jesus was tired, was weak, was worn down, gave heart, gave joy to his heart. And it was through the direction of the Holy Spirit that the life of our Lord Jesus became more and more difficult. Remember, it was the Spirit 
who led Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted there by Satan. And it was the Spirit who spurred Jesus on in every step that he took toward the cross. It was the Spirit who made it clear that the Father would not let this cup pass. The cup of God's wrath. The punishment for the sins of God's people. But yet, of course, it was at the same time the Spirit who must have called upon those angels to minister to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Spirit was there, empowering Jesus to take every step toward the cross and to finally and ultimately pay the price for sin. And after Jesus had paid that price, the Father vindicated him by raising him from the dead. But but how was Jesus made alive? First Peter 3 puts it this way. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit gave him new life. And so, with this background of this vital connection between the Spirit and Jesus, you can make sense of what Jesus says at the end of his ministry when in the upper room he promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And he says, the Spirit will come and he will take from me and he will make it known to you. Who better to make known Jesus Christ than the Spirit? The one who was there the whole time. The best friend of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite something, isn't it? He was there every step of the way as our Lord Jesus walked this earth. As he taught, as he suffered, as he died and rose again. He was the guide and the power and the encouragement. And he, Jesus says, is going to be the one to teach you. There is no better teacher than the Holy Spirit. And he does not just speak the truth of Jesus Christ into our ear. He does not even just give us the words of Scripture. No, he invades our soul. He invades our soul. This teacher comes and makes a home in our hearts. And when he comes, he brings Christ with him. So that who Christ is, he is for you. And what Christ has done, he has done for you. He unites you powerfully to the work of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ in that vital, that that life-giving, life-changing way, brothers and sisters, then it is through the ministry, the service, the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the source of our life in Christ. He's the one who unites us to Christ. He who energizes our Lord Jesus for his mission is the same one who energizes us. For our life in Christ and our mission in this world. He's the source. And he's also the sustainer. Now we could, in considering this, we could continue on from the Gospels and go through the the book of Acts. We had some time to spend in Acts this morning. We heard a part of how the Spirit energizes and encourages the church for their mission of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And that that. Work continues on today. Acts is really just the beginning. As we're called, as we were this morning, by the word of God to continue to proclaim boldly 
the word of Christ. But instead of, of going in that direction, we're going to consider another direction. We're going to consider the inner workings, the effect inside of us that our union with Christ has through the power of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we read that together, that if the Spirit lives in you, that means that Christ lives in you. It's very clear in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says. Listen for the words Spirit and Christ. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of God is in you, Christ is in you. Because this is what the Spirit does. He causes Christ to live in us. And this has two effects for us. Two effects of the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit. The first effect is what you might call the definitive result. The the absolute, once-for-all result. And it's this, that we change sides. When the Holy Spirit causes Christ to live in us, we change sides, we change teams, we change identities. We're not in darkness anymore, we're in light. We're brought from death to life. We're brought from the dominion, the, the rule, the authority of sin and Satan over into the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Spirit. And so if you are not in Christ, you are in darkness. You are dead. You are under sin's dominion. You can't help it. You are powerless in your state. Maybe you love it there. Like a teenager who who first starts experimenting with drugs. And they love the high of it. They, they pursue it. They love the indulgence of sin. There's nowhere they'd rather be. It gives their life purpose and meaning. Maybe you love it like that. Or maybe you hate it. Like the addict. Who's been on drugs for way too long. And knows that they're ruining his life, but he's powerless to fight against them. Or maybe you're oblivious to it. But if you're not in Christ, you are under the dominion of sin. And you are dead in your sins. But to be a Christian is to be united with Christ. It's to be under the, under the dominion of Christ. It means that you cross over from death to life as the Spirit applies all that Christ has done to you. Those sins that you've committed are no longer held against you because Christ has paid for them once for all. You're no longer called a sinner in God's eyes because through Christ you've been declared righteous. You're no longer dead In your sins, because the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. You're no longer lost because the Spirit of Christ has found you. 
You're no longer a slave to sin and Satan and an enemy of God because through Christ you've been adopted by God so that you become his son. And the spirit causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. Brothers and sisters, we live uncomforted if we do not have the assurance of our salvation. We can be so comfortable in this world, but we will have no comfort if we do not have the assurance, if we do not know that we too have been brought over from death to life. If we don't know that we live in God's light, that we are children of God. The Spirit gives us this assurance as he points us to that finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When John Calvin was asked, John Calvin, famous for his doctrine of election, was he, when he was asked, how do we know that we're elect? How do we know that we're on this team and not on that team? How do we know that we're saved? What did he say? He said, we know that we're saved. When we look to Christ, when we look to Christ, and it's the Spirit who empowers us to see that the saving work of Jesus Christ has been done for us. The first effect of definitive is definitive. The Spirit sovereignly, powerfully changes who you are. But the Spirit's not done with that. The union with Christ is not only a status, we not only change sides, but it's also a lifestyle. It changes how you live. You can think of, of perhaps an immigrant or a refugee. Someone who comes to this country and then becomes a Canadian. They're declared legally and bindingly to be a Canadian with the full rights and responsibilities of a citizen of the dominion of Canada. They belong to Canada. They are fully a citizen. But yet, what it means to be a citizen is going to be an ongoing process in their life. It's going to take a long time for their Canadianness to become a part of the warp and woof of how they live. They can be declared a Canadian, but that doesn't mean that they like hockey. But after a while, they'll become more and more Canadian, perhaps in their love of our favorite sport. So though they're fully Canadian, being a Canadian, the culture of a Canadian, it takes time for that to take effect in their life. It's similar with our life in Christ. Even when we're in Christ, we know that we don't stop sinning. You know that. We will one day. But we don't now. We continue to sin. We still show mixed allegiances even. But because we're in Christ, the Spirit is slowly and gradually teaching us what it means to be in Christ. And, and strengthening our desire to serve for Christ. And to live in Christ's kingdom. Consciously and actively. And the Spirit is slowly and gradually purifying our lives, our thoughts, words, and deeds. He's more and more making us act like who we are. 
And yes, this is a difficult struggle. It's a lifelong struggle. It's one with, with amazing victories and unsettling, troubling defeats. Don't we so often lack comfort, not because of that scary world out there, but because of the weakness and sin that's present in here? Isn't that so often why we're not comforted? Why we don't feel at peace? But the Spirit is our encourager and our comforter. He leads us in our fight against sin. He builds our faith in Christ. And he encourages and strengthens us with each step. With the gospel of our Lord. With all that the Lord has done for us and is continuing to do in us. And finally we come to our security. As the spirit not only lives in us. Sorry. Sin not only lives in us. But it permeates this world. Sin lives in us and the spirit is, is, is purifying our lives. But there's, there's more, isn't there? There's sin out there in this world where Satan is like a roaring lion. Sin affects our politics. It affects our relationships. It affects our history. And this sin filled world encroaches on us, even God's children. The injustices out there we experience together with Christ church all around this world, as we heard about this morning, the persecuted church. The hostility of the world breaks out against the church. The brokenness of this world invades our families, our relationships. The sickness in this world breaks down our bodies. It affects every aspect of our lives. But in the brokenness and sinfulness of this world, brothers and sisters, the spirit is given to us as a deposit As a guarantee of a better day. The spirit is given to you as God's promise of complete perfection. And total comprehensive worldwide righteousness. The people, God's people in the New Testament times were people that lived in difficult times. And so often, the authors wrote to God's people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in troubled times, and they said to them, it's okay. You can be comforted. Yes, you're experiencing hardship, but it's okay because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you. False teachers were coming, and they were telling people that Jesus hadn't actually come in the flesh lived and died for sins. And so they're making people question what it means to be saved. And so John wrote to them in 1 John and he says, listen, this is how you can know that you're in Christ and that you're saved because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has taught you that Jesus Christ did come in the flesh and that he did die for your sins. And it's the Spirit that as a result causes you to know Christ. When Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he and his companions had had faced a long and difficult time facing hardship and persecution and difficult providence from God on their way. But yet Paul remained confident. And how did he remain confident? He says this in 2 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. 
and set his spirit of ownership on us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul says later in that letter, yes, our bodies are wasting away. Yes, we're facing hardship. But the spirit causes us to know of a better day. To know that that these persecutions are, are working in us a glory. They're giving us a taste that this work that God has begun in us will be completed on the last day. And so, brothers and sisters, when you go through hardship, when you go through difficulty, you can know that you are in good company. Most of the New Testament has been written to people going through hardship. And the message is that the spirit who is with you as you walk this present journey is the same spirit who enlivened Christ as he walked through hardship. Yes, even as he suffered for your sake. So it's the spirit who brings that work of Christ to your life. It's the spirit who unites you to Jesus Christ. He is the guarantee that you will one day fully experience Christ's victory. He will bring you through the fire, refined and purified. He will clothe you with the glory of Christ. He will finish that work that Christ has begun in you. He is himself the guarantee that we shall be forever free when Christ returns on his great day Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.